Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Proverbs 18.13. He that answereth the matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. How often do you judge someone before they are even finished speaking? How often do you form a conclusion before even hearing the other side of the issue? How often do you take someone's side without fully considering information from all those that are involved? Dear ones, we are very rash to speak our minds so often, and in so doing we disgrace ourselves according to the inspired testimony of Solomon, as found in Proverbs 18.13. Rash statements and quick judgments will inevitably bring much injury to our own name, and rightfully so. For how can we pretend to understand accurately all issues, questions, and opinions on a moment's notice if we have not carefully weighed our response? Before rashly responding to ideas, opinions, decisions, or convictions, we should act as though each of us is a judge in a court of law. Judges who must seek to render an accurate biblical judgment to testimony that is presented to us. Dear ones, if we would be wise rather than foolish, we must follow the inspired exhortation of James. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. James 1.19 As we consider our text in Proverbs 18.13 this Lord's Day, let us focus our attention upon the following two main points. Number one, we do not disgrace ourselves in giving a response. Number two, we do disgrace ourselves in giving a response before we fully understand the issues involved. First of all, we do not disgrace ourselves in giving a response. <clears throat> Solomon says, He that answereth the matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. Now it is clear that Solomon properly qualifies what kind of answering a matter is disgraceful and embarrassing to man, to a woman, or to a child. It is not answering a matter in and of itself that humiliates a man in the presence of others, but rather a specific kind of answering a matter, as we will soon see. For answering a matter, in many cases, is part and parcel of our faithfulness to Jesus Christ. For example, we are called by God to answer a matter in many cases, but I give you simply a couple to consider. We read in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Here we are clearly taught that we are to set the Lord apart as 
holy and worthy of all our worship and obedience by doing something in particular. And what is it that we are to do? Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. The word that's used here for reason is really a word from which we get our word apologetic or defense. To give a defense. It's a term that's used in the court of law for the defense given by one accused of a crime. As we see, uh, Paul uses that particular word in 2 Timothy 4.16 of his defense before uh, Caesar, before the court there. The Lord calls us, dear ones, to an explicit faith in Jesus Christ, where we know and are persuaded of the truth from God's word concerning Jesus Christ in our minds in our conviction. Dear ones, let us not simply believe and accept what is given to us because I say so, or the elders say so, simply because the church says so, simply because our subordinate standards say so, but because God, speaking in his infallible word, says so. When one is able to give a reasonable defense of his faith and of the doctrines of truth which he embraces as true and defends that and shows that from the scripture he does not bring disgrace upon himself but rather exalts the Lord before an unbelieving world this is all that apologetics seeks to accomplish a reasonable defense of the truth revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures. Carefully note the frame of mind and conduct that should be present in our defense with meekness and fear or reverence to God. Rather than this kind of answering the matter, bringing shame to ourselves, it brings shame to those who attack us for what we believe when we have these graces evident in our delivery and in our manner that we approach people. Herein, dear ones, is a divine warrant for us to study the faith for which we stand. Stand upon the authority of God's holy word. Stand upon the authority of God's holy word and do not be moved from the authority of God's word. Let men know that you do not embrace this doctrine or this teaching because of some mere preference or because it is the mere teaching of your church, but rather because it is the teaching of God who cannot lie as found in Scripture. Dear ones, implicit faith or absolute obedience required by any authority, whether civil, familial, or ecclesiastical, is in effect a denial of this passage in 1 Peter 3.15 and a denial of true Christian liberty. For how can one give a reasoned defense of a doctrine that is attacked when his appeal is to the fallible authority of man rather than to the infallible authority of Jesus Christ as found in his holy word in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. 
Even the apostles of Jesus Christ did not pretend to exercise such an implicit or absolute authority over the consciences of men. As we read of the approving example of the Bereans in Acts 17, verse 11. These were more noble than those of Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Likewise, the word, words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, where we read, <clears throat> Not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy. For by faith ye stand, by faith in God and in his revelation. You stand. We read in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 31, verse 4, All synods or councils, since the apostles' times, whether general or particular, may err, and many have erred. Therefore, they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as in help in both. For to believe a doctrine or to accept a religious practice as true simply because of the authority of the church is to make man the Lord of our conscience. When we read again in our confession of faith, God alone is Lord of the conscience. This was one of the most powerful Reformation truths proclaimed by Wycliffe and Huss and Luther. And Calvin and Knox and others. It set men free from the tyranny of men's mere authority over the conscience. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, gives us a faithful testimony of martyrs. Martyrs of Jesus Christ. When it says, and they overcame him, by the blood of the Lamb, that's our justi justifying testimony, <coughs> our justifying testimony, the blood of the Lamb. There's where our conscience goes for our justification, blood of the Lamb. So they overcame the uh, dragon, Satan, by the, by the uh, blood of the Lamb. Secondly, by the word of their testimony, that's their verbal testimony, their outward testimony that they gave as we just looked at in 1 Peter 3.15. And finally, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. That's their sacrificial testimony. It wasn't a mere statement that they gave and it was upon their lips, but they were willing to die for that statement. They were willing to die for that profession. They were willing to sacrifice family, friends. They were willing to sacrifice jobs, financial security. They were willing to sacrifice whatever was necessary to uphold that testimony, that faithful testimony of Christ.
and in his word. Another example of a a kind of speaking, answering the matter, I would submit to you not only as we find in 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, another example that would be certainly approved by the Lord is in James 5, 15. Confess your faults one to another. Confess your faults one to another. Here we find a second example of answering the matter which is approved of God and which is not condemned by Proverbs 18.13. When we have sinned against a family member, against a brother or sister in Christ, against a friend or a stranger, we are called to acknowledge our sin to them and to God. We so often sinfully convince ourselves that if we confess that we have sinned against others, we will disgrace ourselves and lose the respect of others. If we do lose the respect of others, dear ones, because we confess to them our sin against them, then I would submit that their respect was not worth having in the first place. To the contrary, the respect of those that is worth having will be increased by our humble confession of sin. More often than not, the reason we do not want to confess our sin to others is because we want to save face before others. Or we do not want to appear weak before others. And so the real problem at that point is pride and conceit. There once Jesus Christ died and suffered the infinite wrath of God against the sin of pride in our lives. Let us therefore recognize it when it raises its ugly head in our own lives and in our relationships with others. How this pride shines forth, dear ones, in our marriages when we know we shouldn't have uttered those vengeful words or shouted those angry words or used that profane and ungodly speech or hurled that horrible name and yet refuse to humble ourselves and confess our sin to God and to our husband or wife. What a means of sanctification, dear ones, our marriages are to us, for they daily teach us how much pride yet lives within our hearts and manifests itself within us. If we would put such pride to death in our refusal to confess our sin to God and to one another, we must look to the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, who delivered us from guilt, all guilt, and all punishment that that pride deserves, and confess our need of Christ. Confess our sin and our weakness and flee to Christ for his forgiveness and his help in overcoming those sins in our lives. We must look to the example of Christ, who, though being the eternal Son of God, humbled himself to suffer a criminal's death. We must earnestly pray that God would expose our pride to our sight, that we may see in it all of its ugliness and contempt of God, for pride itself exalts itself above God. Pride exalts itself uh, 
above the Almighty, just dethrones even the Almighty. And dear ones, we must seek the grace of God to teach us to hate and despise that pride and that conceit with all of our heart. Part of the process in mortifying pride in our hearts and in our lives is to learn to humble ourselves in confession of our sin to God and one another, to be transparent, to be honest before the Lord. As we said in recent sermons, that we really cannot be honest before one another if we are not honest before God. How, dear ones, our marriages and every other relationship with God and man would grow if we could simply learn to apply increasingly this one truth to our lives. That of humbly confessing our faults one to another. Thus, there are many times in our lives in which we are called to give an answer to others which is not disgraceful to ourselves, but glorifying to the Lord. But there is a specific time in which we are called to refrain from giving an answer to others. <coughs> Let's consider now what that time is. The second main point. We do disgrace ourselves in giving a response before we fully understand the issues involved. King Solomon, a man renowned for his wisdom, gives us counsel inspired by the Holy Spirit of God when he states, He that answereth a man before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. <coughs> Here we see there is a specified time when we are to bite our tongues, close our mouths, put our hands over our mouths, and wait to speak. That time is before we understand what has been said. In all such cases, Solomon says, we bring public reproach and shame upon ourselves, for we act as though we know something when we really don't. Nothing wrong with asking questions, obviously. Nothing wrong with seeking to understand what the person is saying. But in condemning and rebuking before we actually understand the issue, that indeed is what Solomon is condemning. Quite literally, Solomon says in Proverbs 18.13, quote, He that returneth a matter before he heareth it, it is falling shame to him, returneth a matter before he heareth it. Here's a man who humiliates and embarrasses himself before others, or a woman who humiliates and embarrasses herself before others. Why? For he or she returns a matter before the matter has been heard or understood. What would you think of a tennis player awaiting the serve of uh, his opponent? And before the ball is served, he suddenly runs to his left and delivers a big backhand. Or runs to his right and delivers a mighty forehand. Wouldn't he become the laughingstock? of his opponent, everyone who witnessed it? Or what about the baseball player who stands in the batter's box waiting for the ball to be pitched and before the pitcher even goes into his windup, the batter takes a full swing at the anticipated uh, pitch and takes off for first base. Why would he con be considered in such a situation to be the laughingstock? 
why would we consider such a thing to be absurd? Because he returned to swing before the ball was pitched. So likewise, I would submit Solomon is saying someone who gives an answer to a question or to a matter before he has fully acquainted himself with what has been said uh, is going to be in a similar situation. In such a case, he returns a conclusion uh, before he has studied, considered, and understood the issues involved. And to do so, Solomon says, is to make himself look like a fool in the presence of others. The longer I live, the more I want to put uh, my hand over my mouth before saying anything. For the longer I live, the more I realize how much I don't really know. The more I grow in knowledge, the more I realize how little I know. The more I grow in knowledge, the more I realize how much I need to learn. The impulsiveness and rashness of all of us is that of that is more revealed in youthfulness because it's very characteristic of, of youth to do so. Certainly it's very much happens to us all even as we grow older as well. But in our youth so often we we seem to think or act as though we know it all. It's not pointing fingers at any particular person. It's simply, I think, a characteristic of our youthfulness. How many words I've uttered that I would love to have taken back and considered more carefully before having put them out into the public arena as a settled conviction. I suppose all of us, like Augustine, will have our own book of retractions. But may they occur less and less the older we grow because we have better control of our tongues and increasingly learn to base what we believe. And before we move from one pet position to another, we remain steadfast and say, this is where I stand until the word of God that I'm presently adhering to until the word of God can be shown and graded to me that I must move from this position to another position. Job's friends fell into the sin of answering a matter before they fully understood the issues involved and in so doing condemned the righteous Job. They accused him of suffering due to some unrepented sin in his life when actually Job suffered for righteousness for righteousness sake, because he was upright. And God, because of that uprightness, Satan came and sought permission to, to devastate Job with various types of uh, maladies, illnesses, removing his wealth, his health. And why? Because he was standing for righteousness and truth. How often do we issue an indictment and judge our husband or wife our child or parent, our fellow Christian, our elder or member, or someone at work before we have all the facts we need. 
It is not that we are never to make judgments concerning others, but according to Matthew 7.1, we are to seek, first of all, to take the beam out of our own eye before seeking to do, remove the moat, the speck, from the eye of our brother. This is not an absolute prohibition against ever declaring that the words and behaviors of others, the conduct of others is sinful. It is an absolute prohibition against judging others before you judge yourself by the same standard of judgment and deal with your own sins so as to avoid hypocrisy. Our standard of judgment, dear ones, by which we judge must be the word of God. In another situation, the Lord Jesus, you'll recall, does not forbid people from judging, but rather what he forbids is judging according to appearance. In John 7.24, we read, Judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. In this particular manner, or in this particular case, we might ask ourselves, how would we want to be treated by others? Should we not do unto others as we would have others do unto us? If we cannot apply that standard to how we are treating others, then again, we are simply practicing hypocrisy. All such rash judging of others falls under God's condemnation. The Roman governor Festus rashly interrupted Paul, you remember, in the midst of Paul's testimony to Festus's own detriment and injury. In Acts 26:24, where Festus states, and as he thus spake for himself, that is Paul, as he spake for himself in his defense. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. We very often become impatient to say what is important to us and thus violate this proverb when we will not allow someone to finish their, their sentence or their thought. We shamefully reveal our selfishness and our pride and our impatience when we do so. And when we do so, we reveal we're not really interested in hearing what is being said to us, but rather in what we have to say to someone else, to the other person. This is especially a problem at those times when passion and emotion are more involved in our discussions if there is any time to closely listen to what is being said without interruption, it is when we become involved in a very heated discussion. And yet, more often than not, due to the heat, we do not desire to receive 
any light from anyone else, simply to manifest our heat. One of the most important tools, dear ones, in effective conflict resolution is to listen closely and to ask pertinent questions in an objective, non-aggressive, non-defensive manner as possible. When you can, and when we all can control by God's grace our tongue and open our ears, we will more likely also control our emotions and be able to learn what is the real problem and from that have a greater opportunity for reconciliation. When considering various doctrinal issues that affect our faith and practice, let us carefully hear and ask questions before spouting off like Mount St. Helen. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 12 through 14, states, If thou shalt hear, say, in one of thy cities, which the Lord thy God hath given thee to dwell there, saying, Certain men, the children of Belial, are gone out from among you, and have withdrawn the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which ye have not known. Then shalt thou inquire, and make search, and ask diligently, and behold, if it be true, and the thing certain that such abomination is wrought among you, then it continues with what should be done. We must be sure <clears throat> to speak when touching doctrine, worship, and government with the authority of Scripture. Otherwise, all we are doing is speaking the mere words of men. And when we do speak with the authority of God as found in His Word, let us speak the truth in love. The truth of God and the authority of God, dear ones, is ever to be defended, preserved, and promoted. Even with our very lives, as we have noted from Revelation 12:11, even when it costs us relationships, jobs, security, the honor and authority of Christ, as found in his person and in his word, is what matters most. I would leave with you today the words of Jesus Christ that is found, the words that are found in John 14:6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Son of God, dear ones, does not need to research a matter before he speaks or acts. For nothing is hidden from his all-piercing eyes of truth and righteousness. All things are bare and naked before him with whom we have to do. Let us then not hastily interrupt the Lord as he speaks to us by his word and by his spirit as if we know more than he. Let us not exalt our knowledge over his knowledge. Let us humbly and thankfully receive all that he teaches us from his word with an absolute obedience and submission. For only he is the truth and has the right to command such obedience. Let our faith not rest in the mere words of men, but in the authority of God's word, thus saith the Lord. 
This alone, dear ones, is our firm foundation. This alone can save us. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. The only way to forgiveness. The only way to have the joy of the Holy Spirit. The only way to have peace of conscience. The only way to have contentment in this world. The only way to have everlasting life in heaven above. The way of Christ is indeed narrow. The Lord says that it's very narrow and few there be that find it. But dear ones, there is more than enough room. There is more than enough room in that way. And on that road to God through Jesus Christ for all who will humble themselves before the Lord, acknowledge their desperate need of a Savior, pour contempt upon all their pride and their sin and rebellion against God, and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ alone by faith, not trusting in your merit, in your goodness, in your worthiness, in the very least, but confessing and embracing Christ alone as your righteousness and your only hope of eternal salvation. Christ is not simply, dear ones, one of many ways to God as some false religions teach. He is the one and only way to God. If you do not walk on that narrow path, you cannot have everlasting life, but rather are walking the broad path, which the Lord Jesus Christ says leads to destruction and hell. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, grant to us the grace to walk that narrow path. It is so easy, Lord God, to, uh, because of our corruption, to want to walk the broad path because it is so much more comfortable. It is so much more easy to do so. But, oh Lord, it is not within us and in our own strength to walk that narrow path. And so we ask, Father, that Thou would, would grant to us the grace in walking that narrow path to walk in obedience to Thee, Obedience to thy authority as it is revealed in thy scripture, in thy word. We pray, our Father, that thou would forgive us for every way in thought, word, or deed, in our desires, uh, in our ambitions, in any way that we have, Lord, walked the broad path. We pray, Father, that thou would bring us back to walking that narrow path. We pray, O Lord our God, that Thou would grant to us again the grace to look to Christ alone, the author and the finisher of our faith. Forgive us, Father, of all of these sins uh, that relate, O God, to our pride, uh, that relate to our rash uh, speaking, our rash opinions and judgments, and help us, our God, to walk faithfully before Thee in obedience to Thy Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. 
You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.